You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Father, I'm not convicted. I'm convinced that you're here. And not out of some emotional feeling that I have, but because your word tells me you're here. That where two or three are gathered in your name, and that's, Father, why we're here tonight. We've gathered in your name uh, to lift you up as Lord and Savior and to listen and to sit at your feet, not at a preacher's feet. So, Father, we thank you for your presence here. We believe that you hear us when we pray. And we come and lift up all of these that I've mentioned, Father, all of the needs that are there. Um, We intercede for these folks. We pray for them as best we can. We are their family. Uh, This is our family. And we pray for one another. Uh, Your word gives us so many one another's that we're to do. And one of those is to pray for one another, to love one another, to care for one another, to be there for one another. And so, Lord, in this prayer, I pray that we're doing all of that. So we lift these needs to you. We hold them up to you. We trust them. We trust you. We trust you with their care. We trust you with their ministry. And uh, we say, thank you, Father, for what you're going to do. Because we believe exactly what your word says, that you work all things together for good to those that love the Lord and who are called according to his purpose. So we pray that now, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the Christian life is a lot like stepping on an airplane. I fly a lot, or I used to fly. I don't fly as much now as I did. Uh, I'm, I, I, uh, you get on a plane, and it becomes almost, there are weeks that go by that I feel like something's not right because I'm not doing this. You know, I'm not just on that plane bumping around. Life is a lot like like riding on an airplane. The Christian life is like riding on an airplane. 99% of the time, you are off course. Did you know that? 99% of the time. Now, not in a major way, but that's why you have pilots, and that's why you have avionics, is that there are constant adjustments being made. You've got... um, You've got updrafts, and you've got downdrafts, and you've got crosswinds, and you've got the magnetic pull of the earth, and you have got uh, turbulence, and you've got storms. You've got all these things that are constantly pushing and moving and jostling that plane, and there's a constant recalibration to keep it on course. Do you realize that in a normal jet flying about 500 miles an hour, if you are one degree off, you can be 99% on course, but if you're one degree off, you will every 60 miles be off course an additional mile. So if you're flying 1,000 miles to Jacksonville, Florida, you're going to be 60 miles off course. You're going to land out in the Atlantic Ocean. You're going to be in the Gulf Stream somewhere. So that's why there's this constant adjustment by the plane, by pilots, uh, because life is like that. Life is constantly, things are constantly coming, moving, knocking you off course. I tried to give you that illustration Sunday morning with um, Vanderlei, uh, Delima, the runner uh, from Brazil who was shoved off of the marathon course. Uh, that's life. And when you come to the life of Joseph, you're going to, th- if you don't know the rest of the story, like 
Barry was talking about, if you don't know the rest of the story, you would look at Joseph and think, my stars, what's going on here? You know, he must be displeasing God some kind of way. God must be upset with him. He is way off course in his life. This has pushed him off course. That has pushed him off course. The interesting thing is this, is that everything about the life of Joseph that seems to knock him off course is, is used of God to get him to the exact precise place at the exact precise time that God wanted him there. Well, if you've got your Bibles, I want you to look with me. Just open them up and go with me, if you will, to uh, Genesis chapter 37. That's where you begin the story of Joseph. Now, I want you to think about something. Let me give you a little bit of biblical background here. Think about the book of Genesis, 50 chapters. In the first 11 chapters, you want to talk about the economy of language? This is one reason I am convinced uh, that this is the Word of God, is because in the first two chapters, you have the whole of creation, and if you follow it biologically and uh, zoologically, in all of those ways, it, it is in precise order. And yet it is so completely told in such an economy of words. By the time you get to the 11th chapter, you've gone through all of creation of the earth. You have gone through Noah and the destruction of the earth and the saving of eight people and of, and of two of these animals, um, most of them, some others you get a little more than two, than two. You get out of that, Noah comes out of that ark, you have Nimrod in the Tower of Babel, and God comes down, scatters that, and uh, confuses the language all in 11 chapters of a 50-chapter book. That happens in the first 11 chapters. Then do you know what happens over the next 14 chapters? You should because I taught it when I first came here, the life of Abraham. 14 chapters. You have four people from chapter 12 to the end of the book of Genesis that you look at, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Abraham gets 14 chapters. Joseph gets 14 chapters. 25% longer with Joseph in the chapters than with Abraham. Is that not fascinating? 25% more words are used in the Joseph story. Now let me tell you, Joseph is a type of Christ. He is an Old Testament picture of Christ. And uh, I'll never get through, it, close to being through with Joseph's life uh, in these two months. We'll come back at some point and pick it back up. But let me, let me tell you, I'm going to point out along the way little things that you will see. I'm going to show you something tonight. You begin to put together these pictures and you'll see how he is a picture of Christ in the Old Testament. Now, when it comes to Joseph, there's one verse you need to remember, and it's not in the Old Testament. Uh, it is in the New Testament. Put your finger right there in Genesis chapter 37 and go with me all the way over to Acts chapter 7 in the defense of Stephen. And I've got one part of a verse or one verse that you need to remember all the way through the study of Joseph's life. Acts chapter 7, and look at verse 9. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. 
yet God was with him. There you go. That's the whole life. That's it. That's Joseph's life right there. Shut the Bible. We can go home now. That's his life right there. That's, that's the verse you just need to keep in the back of your mind. Joseph really shows us what it's like to have victory in faith. As you go through the book of Genesis, you're going to see this over and over and over again, this life of faith. And there are certain people in Genesis that's going to show you this aspect of faith or that aspect of faith. You come to Abel who brought and offered a better sacrifice, and he illustrates the basis of faith. Uh, you come to Enoch, who walked with God and he was not, and he becomes the illustration of a, a walk of faith. Noah illustrates perseverance of faith. He built that ark for 120 years. Nobody had ever built a boat. Nobody ever knew what a boat was for. Well, Noah persisted at it. He persevered for 120 years. Abraham illustrates the obedience of faith. Isaac illustrates the power of faith. You got a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old wife, and they have a baby, that's what you call the power of faith. Jacob illustrates the discipline of faith, and Joseph, Joseph illustrates the triumph of faith. You don't think that Joseph is ever going to come out of this, but he is. He is going to come out of it. Now, here we are, Genesis chapter 37 and let me begin reading in verse 1. Now, Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned. Uh, he is in the land of Shechem is where he is. In fact, he's going to buy a piece of Shechem. He will be the first one outside of Abraham when he bought, um, you know, the cave at Machpelah. This is going to be the second part of that land that they will buy. That's back in chapter 33. I'm going to reference that in just a little bit. That's why I've uh, given it to you now. Jacob lived in that land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generation of Jacob. Um, you read that this way. These are the accounts of whoever. These are the accounts. In fact, your translation may have that. Mine has it. These are the records. That's the 11th time in the book of Genesis that you read that. And every single time you read that phrase... These are the records or these are the accounts. You start a whole new section. So right here in Genesis chapter 37, you're starting really an entirely new section. And look at how it begins with Joseph. Verse 4, they hated him. That's it. And in fact, that's going to play out through the rest of the book of Genesis. They just hated him. His brothers they hated him so much that the Bible says they could not speak to him on friendly terms. Do you all speak when you get up and sit down at the breakfast table in the morning? Boy, man, it is quiet, isn't it? You know, not that you're that angry with one another, but can you imagine? You felt the tension before when somebody walks in the room that everybody dislikes. Now, I don't mean just dislikes. They hate. They hated him. In fact, we're told three times in this text, in verse 4, in verse 5, and in verse 8, they hated him. And then we're told they hated him even more. And then we're told they hated him even more than that. 
They hated him to the point to where they could not speak to him. They couldn't say good morning. They couldn't say how are you. They couldn't ask him how's your day. And you look at this and you think this guy is already off course with his family. How is this going to work out? This isn't good. This doesn't look right. But God was with him. Don't forget that. Acts 9, don't forget that. God is with him. And every time you think this guy is off course, you need to realize that's just stepping stones for Joseph that he doesn't know where they're going. He thinks he's off course. He, he's wondering, and you're going to see this, what in the world, God, are you doing to me? But the fact of the matter is God's maneuvering him to exactly the place that God wants him to be. Now, I'm going to show you two things tonight. Both deal with a father. One's going to deal with the earthly father. The other's going to deal with the heavenly father in his life. And the first thing is this, is that a father's favoritism can be fatal for a family. Now, you know the story. I almost wish, I wish I could wave a wand or I wish, you know, uh, men in black. I wish I had a thing I could just click and just wipe your mind of the story of Joseph and I could just build up and take you through it. You know where this is going to ultimately end up. Um, but um, let, me, let me just get you, just stay with me. And just stay right here in chapter 37, right? Because you have got a very dysfunctional family. Very dysfunctional family. And the dysfunction comes in because of the favoritism the father plays for one boy over all the other boys. Now, he should have known better because that was the kind of home he grew up in, but that's usually the constantly repeating story um, with, I'm a man, so I have to, you know, that's what I understand. With men, I see this with men so often. It just repeats and it repeats and it repeats. The violence, um, the abuse, uh, the alcohol, whatever it might be, it just continuously repeats itself. And Jacob grew up in a home where his mother, Rebecca, favored him, and Isaac, his father, favored his twin brother, Esau. And that whole family was messed up. You know, I have often thought of writing a book called God's Dysfunctional Family. Uh, because that thing was so messed up. Isaac, Rebecca, Esau, Jacob, it was just terribly terribly dysfunctional. The whole of the thing was dysfunctional. And now here is Jacob, and he's repeating the same thing. He has this favoritism for Joseph, and it's not good. But I want you to look at this, and let me show you um, the character of Joseph in the midst of this dysfunctional situation. He's a young man, he's 17, and he's a man of character. Joseph, when 17 years of age, I'm in verse 2 now, was pastoring the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth along with the sons of Billah and the sons of Zilpha, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report about them to their father. Now, I have read pastors, I have even heard pastors who have preached that and said this was all Joseph's fault because he did this. Uh, because he came back and he was telling on his brothers, he didn't have to do that. He, he came back, he was tattletale, you know, being a tattletale, and he's just creating all this upset and this stir in the family. Well, I don't think so, because, and I'm going to tell you why. 
If you look at this, when you come to this word, he brought back a bad, two different words in the Hebrew. The word bad means evil or wicked. We would say sin. Uh, and it is even specific in the Hebrew. It is their wickedness. T-H-E-I-R. Their wickedness. Their sin. Um, it is something that these brothers had done. We're not told what it is. We're, we're not given that. But then you read the word report, and the word report in the Hebrew means that which is widely known, that which has been spread around. They did something that was wicked, something that was evil, that was already known in that region. And listen, this was the area where Isaac had lived. Abraham had been through this area. They were known as Hebrews. They were known as the descendants of Abraham. They were known by these people, and they were known by their God. And so all through this area, these brothers had done something uh, that was so wicked that everybody was talking about it all over the place. Now, what Joseph does is this. He goes back with enough understanding. This is the character of the boy. This is the integrity of the boy. He knows his father's going to hear this. He knows this is going to get back to him. And so what he does is he goes in, not with relish, but with heaviness of heart, I'm sure. And he says, I've got to tell you this before the teacher calls you and tells you what my brothers have done. Before the police show up and tell you what my brothers have done. Before somebody comes in and in the middle of a conversation while you're entertaining people, they drop this bomb on you and you're embarrassed. Now that's what happened. And they hated him for it. They hated him because he came back with that bad report uh, about what they had done. Uh, but that was the character of the boy. That was who he was. That's why at uh, 30 some odd years of age, when you find him still in that dungeon uh, of Pharaoh's, uh, that he is living a godly life because what you set yourself up to do at 17 most likely is going to have tremendous impact on who you are when you're twice that age at 34. Okay, all right, amen. Who we are then. That's why it's critical that we have a budget line in this church for preschool and middle school and high school. It is critical that we teach young people principles, godly principles, so that we are not going to be totally pagan, which is the direction we're headed, uh, in the next generation. This was Joseph. That's who he was. He had character. He had integrity. But now let me show you the second thing. And the second thing is this. It was his position in the family. And his dad didn't help this a whole lot. His position in the, in the family was this. Pick it up in verse 3. Israel loved Joseph more than he did all of his sons. Now you didn't have to tell them that. I can promise you, you didn't have to go to Simeon or Levi or Judah or Reuben or any of these guys and say, hey, let me tell you something. Your dad really favors that kid, Joseph. Kids know that. You know, people pick up on that in the church. Listen, let me tell you something. I was a lay person before I was a preacher. I, I was nine months in a Baptist church before I was ever born. Um, uh, people in a church can tell 
when a pastor plays favorites with people. I've been there. I've seen that. I've experienced that. I know that. I know it's true. Um, staff can do that. Staff can have fa favorites. Pastors can have favorite staff. We can have favorites. Let me tell you something. It never ends up well. In my ministry, I've always had to fight this in this way. I have to listen to everybody. Everybody. I don't get a choice about that. Everybody that wants to speak to me gets to speak to me. So, um, this sets up a horrible situation. He loved this boy more than he loved all the other sons. He didn't try to hide his feelings. In fact, it becomes very apparent. Look at what he does. Because he was the son of his old age, you know, which is why he favored him. Now, Benjamin had already come along, and um, Rachel was dead by this time. Uh, but uh, he, this, he was the youngest for so long until Benjamin did come along that he saw this boy and he treated him in a different way. And he made him, now are you right there in verse 3, a very colored tunic. Now all of your life you've heard of Joseph's multicolored coat, his coat of many colors. Dolly Parton even made a song about it. Uh, there's a play. What's it called? The Technicolor Joseph in the Technicolor Coat? Uh, there's, a, there's a Broadway play uh, on, on this whole thing. That is the, a Greek misunderstanding of a Hebrew word <laughs> right there. And you say, well, oh, no, you've, you've become heretical now. No, I'm going to tell you what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew word here is the word pasim. And the word pasim means wrists and ankles. Now that's what it means. That's the word. Doesn't mean multicolored. It means wrists and ankles. He gave him a tunic, a coat that went all the way down to the so it literally means the soles. And it's referring to the bottom of the feet. It went all the way down and touched the ground and it came all the way to his wrists. Now, I'm going to just throw out a couple of things, and you think about this. I almost see prefigured here the robes of the high priest. Now, I'll take it a step further than that. Some have seen in this the seamless robe of Christ. I think it has more to do. Now, there you go. You begin to see a picture here, and you're going to see a number of these as they will come up. But this is what I think. It has more to do with position. Shepherds in that day did not work in anything like that. They worked in sleeveless. They had no sleeve. They were like, you know, those things we call wife beaters. You know what I'm talking about? They have no sleeves. It's just the shirt. And then just the garment that goes here. And that, hadn't y'all heard that term? I'm not trying to be ugly. Well, that's what it looked That's what they looked like. You know, the original James Dean were these 11 brothers right here. Um, and it came here but because they had to have mobility. They had to be able to run. You can't run if you've got on something long all the way down to the ground. They had to be able to run. They had to have their arms free. They did not know what they would be involved in through the course of a day in shepherding sheep. And so it becomes a picture that what 
Jacob has done is he has dressed this boy as the overseer of his brothers. Uh, he has become now one who is in a position not to do the work that they're doing, but he is going to oversee the work that they're doing. Let me take it one step further than that. I've given you four things now. This is the fourth thing that I've given you on this. What I think this is essentially saying is this. You are going to become the patriarch. It's not going to be Reuben, and it's not going to be Judah. It is going to be Joseph. If you will watch this through Scripture, we all know what it means to be the firstborn, but the firstborn, the firstborn is skipped so much. Uh, Isaac was not the firstborn son of Abraham. Ishmael was. Now, he was the first of Abraham and Sarah, but now it goes not to Ishmael, and that's the contention you've got in the, in the world tonight. It goes to Isaac. It does not go to Esau, the firstborn. It goes to uh, Jacob. This is not going to go to Reuben. This is going to go elsewhere. It really passes over, uh, in essence, to Joseph, to his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Through Joseph, they get the double portion. Manasseh inherits, Ephraim inherits. That's why you have no tribe of, of uh, Joseph, and uh, Levite did not inherit uh, you don't have a tri you don't have uh, an inheritance a, a land for Levi so the two is made the two areas will be made up in Joseph's two boys Manasseh and Ephraim now to give you one better than that let me show you something i took you back to chapter 33 and i showed you where Jacob bought that land there Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem which is in the land of Canaan in uh, Padanaram, and he camped before the city, and he bought the piece of land where he pitched his tent from the hands of the sons of Hamar, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of money. Now, watch this. Put your finger there in chapter 37 of Genesis. Go with me to John chapter 4, where Jesus is in this very area. John chapter 4, and uh, it says he came to... Samaria to a city of Samaria called Sychar. That's Shechem. That's the Old Testament city of Shechem. Near the parcel, I'm in John 4, verse 5, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Reuben. <laughs> I'm just wondering if y'all are even following along that he gave to Joseph. So do you see what's going on here? He is setting this boy up to be the patriarch. What you're going to have is you're going to have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, which is exactly what you have in Genesis there. And so in doing that, what he has done is he has made these brothers. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. They hated this boy. They hated Joseph for all these reasons and for more. They hated him. Now, you know, every child should be cherished. Every child is a gift of God. Every child that you have. Every one of them are completely different. They have their own unique style, their own unique personality, their own unique uh, abilities and capabilities. They have their own unique needs. 
and Jacob should have taken these boys and he should have lavished his love on all of these boys and not just on one boy. And what he does is he makes life miserable for everybody in that family and he makes life extremely difficult for the one kid that really did not deserve it. Because you begin to look. Let me show you something here. Uh, Put your finger again right there in chapter 37. Just go over to Genesis chapter 49. And just look at these boys. This is Jacob on his deathbed, and he assembles all of the kids. Come, daddy's dying. Let's get around the bed. Let's listen to what daddy's going to say to us. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power, uncontrolled as war. Boy, we can't do anything with you. Nothing. Uncontrolled as water. You will not have preeminence. You're not getting the keys to the house because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it. You went up to him at couch. He went and had an affair with his father's mother. Simeon and Levi are brothers. The swords are implements of violence. Lord, you two boys are nothing but into everything, and you tear it all up. That's what he said. I'm giving you the Mac Brunson translation here. <laughs> Let my soul not enter into their counsel. I wouldn't listen to what you two boys told me for love nor money. Let not my glory be united with their assembly, because in their anger they slew men. Cursed be their anger. He's got some strong-headed, willful boys. You're going to come to Judah, and pretty much what he says to Judah is all prophetic toward Messiah. But if you follow, because you'll get over here in chapter 38, and you start reading about Judah and Tamar. And let me tell you, Judah is immoral. Judah is manipulative. Judah wants to control everybody. He's got all the, what he's done by giving all of this love and attention to one boy is he's let these other boys just run wild. Well, that's the situation when an earthly father shows favoritism to his children. Let me show you the second thing, and this gets to the heavenly father. The Heavenly Father's will for your life may make others jealous. Now, this is kind of a strong dose for the church right here. If there's one thing that you know about Joseph, you know this. Joseph kept having these recurring dreams. Now, don't forget this. Jacob, you remember? Jacob had a dream too. You remember that? Now, just tuck that away in your mind. Remember back, Jacob had a dream one time. Well, Joseph keeps having these dreams, and here you go with the first one. Then Joseph, verse 5, had a dream, and when you have a weird dream, what do you do? Now tell me what do you do when you have a weird dream? You wake up and you say, you are not going to believe what I dreamed. You will not believe what I dreamed. This woman does it every morning. She dreams all night long. And she gets up and tells me the most bizarre stuff every morning. You will not believe. That's the first thing you do. Now, you've got a 17-year-old boy who has a weird dream, and what's he going to do? Guys, you will not believe what I dreamed last night. We were all out in the field. We were cutting down wheat. 
and we were wrapping them up in sheaves, these sheaves. And he says, I was tying up my sheaf. All of you had your sheaves. And all of a sudden, my sheaf stood straight up and all of your sheaves bowed down to it. And they hated him all the more. You don't need Madame Zorba's book of interpretation of dreams to figure out what that thing meant. And they looked at him in just absolute disgust. And they said, do you think, are you actually thinking that you're going to reign over us? And so they hated him even more. They couldn't hate this kid any more than they hated him. And then what happens? He has another dream. He, he had still, verse 9, yet another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I've had still another dream. You guys just won't believe this. The sun, the moon, and even the stars were bowing down to me. Well, you know who the sun is. That's Jacob. You know who the moon is. Uh, that's Leah because uh, Rachel now is dead. And, and so she's kind of the mother of the camp there. So you've got Jacob, and you've got Leah, the father and the mother, and the 11 stars are the 11 brothers. They're all bowing down to him. And now his dad's going to speak up. His dad's going to rebuke him. But hang on. You just, just watch this. Um, he related it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream you've had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? And his brothers, now this time, look at this. It's not, they, three times we're told they hated him. Now it's turned into a jealousy, an envy. They were jealous of him. But now this is what I wanted you to see. Look at that last part of that sentence. It sounds like, and Mary pondered these things in her heart, doesn't it? And he kept, his father kept the saying in his mind. You know why? Because he believed God was speaking to this boy. Don't forget Jacob had had a dream. Back at a place that he called Bethel, where there was a ladder that stretched from the earth into the heavens. And he knows what it is for God to speak to him in a dream like that, and he knows what it is for God to have a plan for your life, and he knows what it is, and he senses this is God doing this. Joseph didn't make this stuff up. When, this, when these dreams came to him, they came to him from God. And his brothers were jealous of him. Now, some people have said, you know, there again, Joseph is wrong. He told this to him. What do you expect a 17-year-old to do, in all honesty? When you're 14, 15, 16, 17, what's the thing that you are, are terrified of more than anything else? I don't fit in. Nobody likes me. What you're afraid of more than anything else is I'm walking by myself down the hall at school. What you're afraid of more than anything else is that I have to sit by myself in the cafeteria. 
what I hate more than anything else is I have to stand up by the fence out there at PE or during the football game or something because nobody else will have anything else to do with me. And at 17 years of age, this kid has all of his brothers who absolutely despise him and hate him and he doesn't fit in. And I can't fault the boy for telling them to dream, but I tell you this. They saw God's hand on his life, and they were jealous because of it. It happens. I have had the privilege in my life and in my ministry to, well, I have had the privilege in my life to follow two Baptist giants in their pulpits, which I can tell you something is not an easy thing to do. Um, I have had the privilege of walking with men of distinction and renown and um, great men, and I've watched it when they've walked away, and I've heard what was said as soon as they walked away. By the way, that happens in Baptist churches too. When somebody that is being used of God in an unusual way, and it's obvious the blessing of God is on their life, and that they are striving to walk by faith and to live by faith and to do what God has called them to do. And when they're around and everybody is fine and great and full of life and when they walk away, I've heard what has been said before. And usually what is said is full of jealousy and full of envy. Jealousy is an ugly thing. Envy is an ugly thing. Seven things doth the Lord hate, yea. Uh, six things doth the Lord hate, yea. Seven are an abomination. One of those happens to be envy, jealousy. God hates it because it destroys so much that doesn't need to be destroyed. It, um, it decreases satisfaction in life. I was reading an article this afternoon on it. Creates neuroticism, creates hostility, it's destructive in so many ways. It creates depression. This is one reason why so many social scientists say that social media creates greater and greater bouts of depression in people's lives. There's a lot of jealousy that works its way out in a church. But let me tell you something. These brothers were jealous not of just Joseph, they were angry at God. They were angry that God was not doing with them what he was doing with Joseph, but the fact of the matter is they were not doing what Joseph was doing with God, and that was living by faith. The other thing in this is that I think God was trying to teach Joseph something. In this jealousy of these brothers, I think what he was trying to teach him was, you need to depend consistently on me by faith. Now, let me give you two things, and I'll quit, because I'm 44 seconds over. Number one, never, ever give up character to cozy up with a crowd. If you have to be alone out in left field... Be alone out in left field, for crying out loud. Don't give up your character just to run with the crowd. 
Number two, the second thing is this. Never settle for petty favoritism when you can have the favor of God. Here endeth the lesson. Any questions? I'll take a question. Good. Let me pray us out. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this day in the life of this wonderful church, for the staff, for the lunch we had, for the fellowship we enjoyed, for the ministry that took place in and through this church. I pray, Father, for our deacons for this coming Friday night. And thank you, Lord, that we'll be able to gather together. Thank you, Father, that uh, Pastor Hill and his deacons are join us. I pray that you will make it rich time of fellowship between our congregations, our deacons. Pray, Lord, for this coming Lord's Day. Pray that you would uh, speak to us. You would make us a responsive congregation, a congregation that longs to answer every time the Spirit moves and every time you call and speak. Now be with us as we go our separate ways. Lord, there's so many once again in our fellowship that are grieving and hurting. I forgot to mention Becky Nolan, Lord. I pray that you would be with her and her family as she buries her sister and then her great nephew. Um, So many, Lord, that we just need to remember and hold up. Lord, thank you that you remember them, that you see them. And um, we pray your watch gear over all of our lives, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.